Hi, Katie. Hey, Dominic. How are you doing? I hear you've been singing for like 20 hours a day or something this week. That sounds fun. Yeah, I need to work on my work-life balance, I think, Mm -hmm. which is why there was no podcast last week. But we're back with a special episode marking a year since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. This war changed millions of people's lives overnight. And this week, we wanted to spend some time with just one person who has been through that. Someone who's had everything from their work to their love life turned upside down in ways that they totally weren't expecting. Valeria is an actress from Kiev. On February 24th last year, she was starring in a TV show. She was engaged to another actor. And then weeks later, she found herself working as a translator in a war zone. And that's actually how she met our producer, Katz Laszlo, while they were reporting together in Kiev last October. This is the final instalment of our mini-series, This Is What A Generation Sounds Like, a series where we hand the microphone to young people across Europe to tell us about their lives in their own words. And it's a co-production with Are We Europe, made in cooperation with the Allianz Foundation. Here is Valeria's story. It begins with a voice memo she sent Katz about a month ago. Today is January 23rd. Tomorrow it's going to be 11 months of the full-scale invasion in Ukraine. And it made me realize that when all of that just started in February of 2022 year, all of us were counting days. So we knew exactly what day of war it was. It was the fifth day of war. It was the 16th day of war or 23rd day of war. But at some point, we stopped counting days and started counting months. And it's made me realize that what if we stop counting months and we start counting years? Yeah, this thought hit me today. And uh, this is not a good thing to think about, but this is what's been on my mind lately. End of 2021, beginning of 2022, we had a lot of plans. I had a lead role in a TV series playing a basketball player And my fiancé just finished filming another season, playing a detective in a lab. We finally had money. We planned to celebrate with a vacation with our friends, skiing for the first time. We planned to go in summer to France or somewhere. We planned the wedding, so it was just all in future. And I must confess that I didn't think of a war at all. So yeah, there was some posts on Facebook, there was some like conversations among people, but in my people around me, nobody was taking that serious and nobody was actually thinking that something's gonna happen. It was on February 15th. It was our friend's birthday, a small birthday dinner. We were all actors and we were all talking about the industry. I was there with my fiancé, Vlad. We were like, yeah, we have everything. We have this beautiful dinner, we have this beautiful occasion to celebrate. We have these people who love us and who we love. And it felt so good. And at the same time, 
we have this conversation. What are you gonna do when the, if the war started? What are you gonna do? And my Vlad went, I'm gonna go to the territorial defense or to the army. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> good to know. Like, no, 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 nothing happens. I can't let Vlad go to the army. He has never had a gun in his hand. He can't go there. So the war can't happen. One part of me was like, my boy, he's gonna stay, he's gonna defend the country, proud of him. And the second part of me was like, I can't let this happen. Like, this is my fiance, we're gonna have the wedding. I can't let him go and be murdered in the field somewhere. Not for nothing, but for what are we fighting? This is silly, like, why do they need this war? I can't let you go and die. What are you fighting for, for his, like, sick ideas? Russia suddenly invaded my country for no apparent reason? This crazy old man might determine whether I get the chance to grow old with the love of my life. Or not. Because we didn't know what was going to happen. Now I understand, I fully understand for what soldiers are dying, right, on our land. Ukrainian soldiers. But at that point, because I didn't know what was coming, I, I, I wasn't able to, like, make this puzzle work to collect all of this information in my head. I was born in Kiev, lived my whole life in Kiev. My mom, my dad, my Vlad, my friends, everyone I know is here. In mid-February, my older sister rang me, asking me, what are you going to do if the war starts? And I was like, I don't know, why are you asking me this? When it started, we'll, we'll see, because I, I didn't believe that this is gonna happen. I was like, nah, this is too dangerous. And the war is already going on from 2014. They already have the Crimea. Why do they need Kiev? They're not gonna have Kiev, right? And she's like, yeah, if this happens, I'm gonna go abroad. If you want, go with me. I'll provide you for the first month or... And I was like, but what about our mom? My mom doesn't have an international passport, doesn't speak English. My sister couldn't imagine staying in a war, and I couldn't imagine leaving. And neither of us could believe we were having this conversation. And it was all still hypothetical. But suddenly, there were all these new things to ask yourself and each other. The first time when I felt something's gonna happen and I felt scared, it was on February 22nd, so two days before the full-scale invasion. We were at Vlad's village, Miropin, in central Ukraine, sitting around the kitchen table of his parents' house. So I remember we were playing Monopoly. We love this game. <laughs> and then we're like, okay, Putin's speech. Let's, let's go and listen. He looked like he's going to do something. And I felt really scared about that. I was standing near the door. And when I heard it, I leaned on the door. So I just like lost the strength in the body, I think. Something in my chest.
And this was the first and last time when I was scared by Putin. Oh, the scary dude. Now it's like, oh my God, what this like old crazy little grandpa is talking about again. February 24th. The morning the Russian tanks rolled over the borders. Russian soldiers poured into Kiev and missiles rained down from the sky. We'd gotten up at four in the morning to drive west to the Carpathian Mountains. Yep, we were going on a holiday. At 6.40, just as the sun was coming up, messages started pouring in on my university group chat saying, Did you hear that explosion? It wasn't really like, this is a war, we should go back home and be with our families. No, it was like, we're not going to be able to rest because of some explosions, we're going to be worried. It hadn't hit us yet that the war, the real war, had started. It was more like, explosions in our city? It's not a good time to spend a bunch of money. Let's go back to the village. Suddenly, there were tanks on the road building checkpoints out of the huge concrete blocks. All of the cars were like in huge line, waiting, but all of the cars were going to the western Ukraine and we were coming back closer <laughs> to Russian border and everybody was going the other way. We ended up spending the next two months in the village where Vlad grew up with his mom and grandmother. We could stay as long as we liked, have a bunch of food come from the land, It wasn't nearly as protected as the capital, but still it felt much safer. So we could wait it out and get some more information of what this war would mean for us. We made Molotov cocktails on the second day of war. Just, they can stand in the garage, but let's do this. So I was just helping him to like tear the t-shirts and to like open the bottles with fuel, with petrol, with oil and all of that. And we just made seven bottles. We gave high five to each other after that. Like, good job. (laughs) We made it. It was something else. (laughs) Picturing myself throwing Molotov cocktails at Russians, it felt like a video game. But the war was real. There were sirens and army base explosions 30 kilometers away. Two months straight, I was always charging my phone. Even if it was like fully charged, it was always on a charger because I needed to have my full battery all the time. I never muted it. So I was sleeping, then I heard, Ta-da! and I was like, where is it, where is it? Oh, okay, not the, not the left bank, for example. I asked to text my mother every half an hour or an hour. One letter. I would say, like, just send me the A letter or whatever. Just for me knowing that you are alright, you have hands or at least a finger to send me the letter. And I was waiting for calls from my mother, from my friends, because everybody were in Kiev. And I was just waking up in the night every like one hour and checking the phone, checking the phone, checking the news, where were explosions and if there was a call from my mother uh, and were she online or not. I was reading constantly about towns at the edge of Kyiv being occupied. 
bombs falling where my friends lived. Vlad wanted to join territorial defense in Kiev, but I was afraid. So one week into the war, he enlisted in the village instead. Patrolling, manning checkpoints, dealing with anyone who was out after curfew. When he left for his first shift? It was denied, yeah. I, I waited for him. I haven't slept. Like the curfew, he went on 11 p.m. and he wasn't shipped till 6 a.m. Of course, the brain tried to picture the worst scenario in my head. Like, it was a fight between a cold brain and some feelings and some emotions that I had because I understood, like, I don't hear any sirens, right? I don't hear any shotguns or explosions. So, it's, 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 it's safe. I don't hear anything. So nothing is happening, right? But still, I can just think, oh, he's going to be okay. I'm going to go to sleep. It's, it's impossible. Even once the Russian army retreated from Kiev, the city was still really dangerous. There was regular shooting and more Russian soldiers arriving in the suburbs. But I desperately wanted to go back. To sleep in my bed. To have the place for myself. To see my mom actually be able to get to her if anything happened. I was like, okay, we need to figure the way how we can earn some money because then we can go back to Kiev because I really want to go back. Let's work at the territorial defense was completely unpaid. Two months ago, both of us had been starring on hit TV shows and now we had no idea where our money would come from. I was like, I can translate things. And I started to search for some translations, work, maybe voiceovers. Slowly, I started getting gigs, interpreting interviews over the phone for journalists. A woman who fled Kharkiv on a bike. A guy who was recording fairy tales for kids to listen to in the bomb shelters. But eventually, an international media outlet asked me to come back to Kiev. And interpret in person. We need you in Kyiv. We want to try you for some project. Come to Kyiv. It was a blessing. I wanted so hard to come back to Kyiv. They were like, we're going to go to the Hostomel. Hostomel is one of the towns just outside of Kyiv that Russian soldiers seized right on the first day of the full-scale invasion. And they wanted me to go there and interview people who were under occupation in the school basement for a month. 30 children and 60 adults. So you're going to be wearing like a bulletproof vest, a helmet. And I was like, okay, whatever it takes. Sensitive stories when I'm going to do this. I, I'm ready. I want to do this. Uh, I, I, I thought I was ready. Vlad gave me a ride to Kiev. And when we were driving into the city, I saw all of the tanks on the road. I saw destroyed buildings, I saw the huge holes from the bullets, from the pieces of missiles, and this was my first time when I was actually touching this war. This is my area, I knew everything in it. A maternity hospital, that was destroyed, there was a huge hole in the wall. And I was like, this is a maternity hospital, it was so just like, bullet holes. I was crying. It, it's just like destroying my house, you know? It's like they went into my space 
invaded. They invaded my space. They invaded my property, my home. And it was, I was so angry. And, and Vlad was like, you saw only this and you didn't saw Hostomel yet. Do you understand what's gonna happen tomorrow? And I was like, yeah, but I have no choice. I said that, I, that I'm gonna do this. I'm an actress, and my English is decent, but I have never translated for war journalists. No one gave me any instructions. And I remember that I couldn't sleep at all that night because I was worried about how I'm gonna translate this, how I'm gonna... Can I do this? Am I able to do this at all? I don't know. I wasn't sure. Can I keep it together? Maybe I don't know some words. Maybe I don't know some special vocabulary. What should I do? And there is no mobile covering. I, I wouldn't be able to Google it. And I was so scared that I'm not gonna be like good. I'm not gonna be able to translate something. And they would think like, oh my God, why is she telling that she can translate things? The next morning, we drove off a car full of strangers into Hostomel, which had just been liberated a couple of weeks ago. They say that we're gonna interview the ladies who were under the occupation in the school basement for a month and they were cooking on the kitchen for Russians. The violence was all over the news, right? But you don't actually read this little things that people can tell you in the private conversation. This little details, like when this woman, she said, you're gonna cook for yourself. I'm not gonna cook for you. And I was like, what does she, what did she feel? What did she have in, in her heart to have guts to say that? And what was going on in her head? And more of that, she said, and you're gonna wash the dishes after yourself too. And they were like, okay. I kept trying to memorize this woman's face. I was thinking, there are going to be films made about this time. We're going to have to tell these stories, and I want to be able to do that right. I couldn't switch off that acting reflex. While I was translating, I was okay. I was busy, I was concentrated. But when I came back to the hotel and I was all alone in my room, I was like... And then everything, like, got me. And I wasn't like weeping, right? I was just crying because I was exhausted by the feelings that I felt. I, I just came back to my Kiev. I just saw everything that they did to my native city. And, and this was too much for me to happen in one day. These people, they're journalists. They're really good journalists. They're here with you and they're feeling that pain. But this is different when it's my city. And now I'm walking the street, but I hear the sirens. I called Vlad. I told him, like, we were talking for, like, maybe two hours. I sent him pictures because I needed to talk it through, like, to let it go. 
But I didn't let it go, obviously. <laughs> and it's not like it stopped there. Me and this team of journalists traveled across the country. And it was just like non-stop, it was the whole week. I was lucky because my first reporter that I was working with, she was a human first and the journalist second. Sometimes after that, when I was working with other journalists, I felt something different. And I was maybe uncomfortable asking some questions because I was like, this is not what you should ask this person right now. Uh, I wouldn't ask this question if I were you. I imagine that you, like me before, mostly read about the violence on the news. But as much as you can never get used to explosions, to war, I settled into this new reality. Daily life goes on. And inside that, we started making deeper adjustments. In May, Vlad decided to fully switch to Ukrainian. He said, like, I don't want to speak Russian at all. I want to just cut it off. I don't need this language. And I was like, yeah, you don't need this. Before that, the most I spoke Ukrainian was actually at the theater school, performing plays in fancy, old-fashioned language. Loud and clear, so the last row can hear me. So it's harder for me to speak like a normal person in Ukrainian, but I'm trying to do that. I had a wider vocabulary in Russia because I read in Russian since like I was a teenager. So all the books that I read was in Russian. But this doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. At this point, I almost never speak Russian. A couple of words here and there. I can understand that I am changing when I speak Ukrainian. Analyzing the reflection of people, I can see that the people listen to you differently. Everybody's saying that it's better to speak bad Ukrainian than a perfect Russian, and nobody's gonna judge you, and nobody's gonna, somebody's gonna correct you, like, no, this is not a right word. You should say like this. But this is only because people are like that. People like to correct other people and to just say that they're smarter than you. We're also navigating our relationship in a war. We know a lot of people around us who broke up, for example, because it was the obstacle that was really hard. But for us, I feel like we passed this exam. Like it was the hardest that could possibly happen to us, like the worst. We were dealing with it. We're negotiating. We listened to each other. I'm really proud of us. We got married, <laughs> so it's like the total opposite. We canceled the big party, got married in September instead. Just the two of us at City Hall. The air raid siren went off right when we arrived, and the staff wouldn't marry us until it was over, so we waited outside on the steps for half an hour. We ate burgers at the gas station. Me in the wedding dress, blood in a tux. We went to the KFC, KFC, not KFC, <laughs> not the fast food one. This is like a big reservoir of water near the Kiev. This is not actually a sea. And we said our vows privately. We just said what we felt at that moment. 
it's not easy to build something good. So it's the phrase that we often says to each other, like, we're gonna make it. We're gonna try and we're gonna make it. It's a little promise to ourselves. One of the biggest things that changed? Money. I've never earned that amount of money that I earned with translations. This was our safety wrap because Vlad was in territorial defense. So it was just volunteering. They didn't pay anything at all. We have to pay rent. We have to eat something and donate a lot of donations because like this is the rule for me like every Sunday or Saturday I chose some organization or maybe person and I donate depends on what how much money I have in my card but I donate like oh it's hard to tell it also depends on month sometimes it's like one hundred dollars sometimes it's five hundred dollars sometimes it's only ten dollars but I still think the small amounts count Every couple of months, there is a new thing to get used to. Now, it's of course the power outages. Since October, when the Russian army started targeting our power infrastructure, we started to plan our lives around when the blackouts are. I used to joking that people now can do time management during this New Year's resolution. I'm gonna be more organized this year. So these power outages taught them how to do that. Because you have only three hours and you have to cook, you have to clean, you have to wash, you have to charge. And this is like a sport right now. When it wasn't like power for three days, it felt colder and colder and colder. And we don't have hot water if we don't have power. It was hard to keep warm It got really cold and I got sick, got worse and worse and worse. It was difficult. But I try and keep the silliness up. I ordered this battery-powered lamp online a couple of months ago for when the lights go out. Yeah, yeah, this is from AliExpress, like, (laughs) but still, it works just perfect. These feathers are white and the lights are hiding in them. So it seems like like feathers are lightning, this lamp. I like this. I don't know, it looks so extraordinary. (laughs) Sometimes I've thought of leaving, sitting out the war far away. But I still can't face leaving Vlad, leaving my family. And I find it really hard to be around Western Europeans having these theoretical conversations about how all weapons are bad and we had to negotiate with Russia. Here, at least, I know that everyone around me gets it. You cannot negotiate with people who who are here to kill you and to kill your family. First, you need to send them away It's like you're in your apartment and the guy with the gun is coming to your apartment. He kills your mother. He kills your dog. And and your neighbor is saying, talk to him, negotiate with him. Just say to him, 
let's figure something out. You can have this corner of my kitchen. You can live here. You can invite your friends here. And I'm going to be in that corner. And we're going to, I don't know, share somehow our time in the kitchen. I understand why some of you can say that we don't believe in weapons. I want also not believe in weapons. I want also to have right to do this, but I don't have this right. I have to ask for these weapons. I have to donate. That's the only way that we could win. We can win with, with words. If we could, we would do that a long time ago. So I'm staying here in Kiev at home. It's been almost a year and I can't stop thinking about this anniversary. I started reflecting this New Year's. It felt weird to really celebrate, but we got together with just a couple of friends. We watched Zelensky's speech, cheers to a year of victory, and 15 minutes into 2023... It was so loud. I think it was the loudest that I heard in Kiev. We were just immediately grabbed like a glass of alcohol with, with us and go to the like the corridor to the hallway. I saved my Kinder. You know this chocolate in, in shape of egg? <laughs> I got one from Santa. <laughs> so the, the two things that I grabbed was the Kinder on my left hand and the glass of alcohol on the other. And I went and I was like, oh, I forgot my phone <laughs> on the table. And we were sitting like for an hour on the floor. But then we were like, okay, if something's happened, we cannot save ourselves because if there's going to be like arrival of a missile in the apartment building, then we're not going to help it anyway. So we went back to the table. We can identify what it is according to the sound. Poof, 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 poof. Oh yeah, this is air defense. Okay, let's go. A year ago, I would have no idea what is even the difference between a missile and a drone. What do all of these words mean? And now... I can tell the difference between the sound of a bomb and air defense. Because if this is a missile, if this is a drone, this is only one explosion. If it's like five or six in a row, then you'll know that this is like the air defense. Because to stop one Russian missile, you have to like put five or six trying to, to stop the Russian one. The sirens went all night long and the bombs fell all over the country. We have a couple of toasts in like remembering of people who gave their lives for us to sit in here and celebrating and having like rum and cola and all of the different salads. We say a lot of bad words in Russians. You ruined our year, but it wasn't the fault of the year, right? It was the fault of Russian so let's not curse the year. And we had a lot of things good happened in this year. Like I, we got married in 2022. Then our friends got engaged. So it was a good thing. So we can't say this year was awful. Yeah, and it was all about the hopes for the 2023. And we were all sure that this is going to be the, the year of victory. We're going to have our lives back. We're going to be able to travel around Ukraine. We're going to be able to go to Crimea. 
and to see the sea and to celebrate it there. We were we're gonna be able to go abroad, have our jobs back, start filming again in Ukraine. And of course it's gonna be different and it's never gonna be the way it was before, but this is all that we want. I know that there is no other way we can lose this war. We can just, and even maybe deep down, we understand that this is, might never happen to us in 2023, but this is a good thing to just believe in and hope for. These people on the front lines, they're fighting for us to have a normal life here. They don't want us to be sad, they don't want us to sit in our apartments crying all day long. They are fighting for us to be happy here and to have normal, as much as it possible, life here. So they can come and see for what they were fighting. So that's our front line. We have to keep living, keep doing our thing, I feel like I don't let myself I, I don't let myself mm, be super emotional about it. After Dnipro and after Brovery, I cried a little. I, I feel like for for three minutes top. Because if I'm gonna sit and cry about it for like a day, this is gonna just eat me alive. It, it's gonna just like a wave from the ocean. I'm gonna be under it and I'm never gonna get through it. So I feel like we'll let ourselves and I'll let myself be weaker when all of that is over. I feel like now it's not the time to be weak. The singing you're hearing right now is a remix made by the Kifnes of Andrei Horolsky singing the folk song Oyu Luzi Cervona Kalina. This episode was produced by Valeria Fokina and me, Katz Laszlo. Editing came from Katie Lee with additional support from Wojciech Oleksiak and Dominic Kramer. Sound design came from me and mixing and mastering came from Wojciech. Thank you so much to our collaborators at Our We Europe and Allianz Foundation for funding this entire series. And of course, many thanks to our Patreon supporters who are generously helping to keep this podcast going. Other music is Konyiki by Tiktu, Vesna, Baby and Alambri, all by Dachabracha, and our theme music is by Jim Barn.
Oh, and by the way, if you're curious, I scrolled through Valeria's Instagram one day and she has just got these bombastic song covers that she casually knocks out. So to play us out, here she is at home in Kiev singing I Will Survive by Gloria Gaynor. First I was afraid I was better by I kept thinking 